I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises. And dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. Today on our final episode of Beyond Aid, we talk to Gretchen Steidel, who talks with us about the promising evidence and how engaging in mindfulness practices, such as conscious social change, can help us foster compassion and ways of engaging in crisis contexts. She also shares with us a practice that we can all do. Gretchen Steidel, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. You founded Global Grassroots, a mindful-based organization focusing on women in East Africa, and also Circles for Conscious Change. In addition, you were the producer of the film The Devil Came on Horseback, which was incredibly influential when I was working at the UN on the Darfur crisis and was also Emmy-nominated. So we're really excited to have you here with us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So Gretchen, a lot of your work focuses on this concept of conscious social change. I think for a lot of our listeners, and I think for even a lot of the people in the humanitarian sector, this is a new concept. So maybe can you explain a little bit to our listeners, what is conscious social change? Conscious social change is this intersection of inner work and social transformation. It's where We invest in our own level of self-awareness, and that allows us to deepen our understanding of change from the inside out so that we can build deeper human understanding and connection with others as we seek to transform society's structures and systems. It uses mindfulness as a design tool in diagnosing issues, in looking for solutions and engaging with communities, and really ensuring that the way that we go about systems change international development, any of our work that may impact others, that we're doing it as consciously as possible. The more that we become more self-aware, the more that we can see where we have judgments and shadows, where we're limited in our beliefs or where our fears are pushing us in a particular direction to avoid something or where we have bias and other ways of showing up close-minded so that we're limiting the way that we connect and understand other people. So that's a critical piece that then allows us to be more curious, relate to other people in a way that invites learning and understanding and deeper listening. We can show up in ways that allow our ego to kind of step to the side and with a little bit more humility, be willing to learn from diverse perspective and difference, be willing to take that into account as we are understanding problems and beginning to solve challenges, be more open to collaboration and compromise. And I think that results in greater creativity in the way that we solve problems in the world. And of course, there's lots of research as well on how mindfulness, self-awareness, contemplation supports us in building better relationships and leading differently. So there's a whole realm of doing the inner work that then impacts the way that we do the outer work in the world. Can you give us some examples? Well, there's one story that I think was really profound for me early in my work in Rwanda that has stuck with me that I think gives an example of this relevance between the inner work and the outer work. I started working in Rwanda in 2006 
And Global Grassroots is focused on women survivors of war and genocide who are typically the ones that have had the least access to the training, the education, the resources, and the opportunity to advance their own solutions. But they usually have such incredible insight and wisdom about what they and their communities need that for me, it felt just critical that we partner with and see how we can support these local women in designing the solutions for their own community in the process of rebuilding post-war. And so Global Grassroots curriculum blends this realm of inner work and self-awareness work with tools and skills for designing one's own social venture. It's an incubator of sorts, but also a mindful leadership program. And we teach a whole range of different inner work skills to help build the capacity for self-awareness and for understanding of other people. Once you understand yourself, you're more likely to bring compassion to others. Why is that? (laughs) That's a great question. I think when our eyes are open to our what's normally been unconscious to ourselves. Let's say the way we might react to somebody, we're really angry and we snap at somebody else when we're frustrated. When our eyes become more open to the fact that we're stressed and we do that, and we begin to work on changing that behavior, and it's hard, sometimes it's really hard to change art when we're on automatic pilot, then when somebody else snaps at us, we recognize that they may be in a similar position of having a frustrating experience, not in that moment, um, being able to control their emotional reaction. We tend to be a little bit more curious and more willing not to judge because we've been there. And there's also, you know, science shows us that the more that we practice this kind of mindfulness, the more we are actually altering our brain to be able to take uh, another person's perspective more easily, to be able to be more aware of, of what is happening in the present moment and to be able to reframe things in a way that's more positive, then we're less likely to get reactive in response. So that helps to build compassion. One of the things I love about the work you do is that you bring these practices to both communities who are change agents in crisis contexts. And you also bring these practices to young people who may want to work in these contexts, right? So I was curious, I think that in the last 10 years or so, there's so much more discussion about the differences between global actors and local actors and needing to shift towards local actors And what I'm finding is that a lot of global actors, like so individuals who are coming from outside into a country and, and, you know, trying to be part of this humanitarian imperative, find themselves worried that maybe they're they shouldn't be there. Right. Or how to navigate that challenge. And what I love about your work is that you actually bring these practices to both communities. But how, how do you see that? How do you see, right, this like where we should be and how we can still maybe feel a sense of global citizenship or global humanity and also, right, still respect local action? Like where does that come for you in your mind? There's obviously need in everyone's backyard and there are ways in which we are called to work in all sorts of communities and environments. And that's fantastic. We have to listen to where we feel most 
aligned and most passionate and most called. And when that involves an issue in another part of the world, if we can go in more mindfully and consciously to listen and learn, to be able to explore the knowledge and the wisdom of local communities and to see in what way can we use our skills, our privilege, our access to resources, our education in ways that can be of service and of benefit and in partnership very mindfully, then we can find a way to partner and have a a profound impact and begin to, with deeper awareness of the systems that have existed, begin to dismantle systems of oppression, be able to repair the systems of oppression, beginning to help to show up in a very different way, to partner and model ways of doing things that can really help honor and bring to the center those that have always been at the margin. Have you personally gone through that mental journey as well? Oh, I've had so many instances of deep learning from the communities that I've had the privilege of visiting. One of the most profound was right as I was at the earliest stages of working on global grassroots work. Right before I started the Darfur work, I went to South Africa and I came in with a recent business degree thinking that I had a vision for taking corporate investment and trying to channel it towards the work of social entrepreneurs to have a you know, greater resources for their innovations. And I thought I could make a strong case to companies to care about the HIV AIDS crisis because it was impacting their bottom line. And I traveled all over South Africa, chatting with social entrepreneurs and corporate executives and academic experts. And one day someone said, you know, have you ever actually spoken with someone with HIV AIDS? And I hadn't, I didn't know how to do that. I was embarrassed and also confused because it wasn't a situation where I felt like I could just go and knock on someone's door and start talking to them. But I hadn't even tried to inquire, to really listen at that deep level, at the grassroots level in in local communities. I got right to sort of the expert level, quote unquote, expert level. And I learned the expert level was really where I hadn't yet spent any time. In my 20 years of working in this field, I don't think anyone ever asked me to take a look inside myself during this work, right? And so I think that that's, I think that's really missing. Um, And I'm really excited about the increasing amount of research and evidence out there, the increasing amount of, you know, practitioners and leaders like yourself who are bringing these practices both to right the new generations wanting to work in these spaces as well as the communities themselves working on them and but why do you think there's such a uphill battle why is this not central yet to humanitarian aid well i think i think it's only a matter of time but we have so many urgent international crises from climate change to war to other urgent challenges facing people in a life and death situation, or these are long-standing entrenched challenges that take so much time and effort to be able to see impact taking shape, that there's this constant sense of urgency that we have no time to lose. And 
the realm of contemplation and mindfulness, meditation, and well-being feel self-indulgent in that environment. And we don't have time for this. There's lives at stake. It takes everything we've got. We're so limited in resources in these sectors as well that there isn't a budget for taking time out because we'll fall behind and we won't reach our annual impact figures and metrics that we've set for ourselves. And so I think it's, it's, it's very difficult for people and organizations to prioritize well-being, to prioritize mindfulness as an ethos of, of how they lead, to incorporate it in the ways in which they engage in the world because they're, we're living in this constant sense of urgency. And I think this is also a challenge of the philanthropic sector that requires organizations working on these big issues to be able to demonstrate um, impact data within 12 months in grant cycles that doesn't allow for longer term transformation as easily as it could. And so people are always up against a clock. And yet, if we were to recognize this is evidence-based, there's science that supports what wisdom traditions have known for centuries, that there's a tremendous amount of benefit to us. If someone asks you to cite a piece of evidence, what's something that you cite about the effectiveness of these kinds of practices? Well, <laughs> there's so much in terms of, of what we're discovering about the impact of mindfulness. It's technically a form of brain training. And it's not easy, going back to what you were just describing. There was a Harvard study in 2010 that showed that our minds are wandering about 47% of our waking hours we're already up against a huge obstacle to just like be present in this very moment, but people were less happy when their minds were wandering, when they were present, when they felt a sense of connection, engagement, and flow, that that was when they felt happiest. But what we're learning through the research in terms of what that brain training does to us is it helps us on a couple of different fronts. A simple practice, for example, of trying to be aware of something like your own breathing and then discovering, oh, my mind is wandering, and then bringing your attention back to what you're doing again, that breathing or something else, is incredibly effective in building our capacity for our attention regulation and uh, meta-awareness, which is basically you're aware of yourself, your own observer, you're aware of what's happening within yourself. When I think about working in humanitarian crisis contexts, no matter from what perspective you're doing it, the things that you're describing seem to be central and core to being able to engage with that work and bring your best self to it and find the best Absolutely. solutions and all of those things. That's what's so powerful. Can you leave us with one practice that our listeners could do? And I know there are so many, but what is one practice that you could describe to us in a couple of minutes that if our listeners wanted to try to engage in one of these practices, what, what, what's something that maybe you could leave us with in our last couple of minutes? What I find most valuable, and you can do this in, say, seven minutes, it's like the average time of a coffee break, or you could set your alarm clock in the morning a little bit earlier and hit the snooze button, which is usually nine minutes and do it right when you wake up, or you could do it in a snapshot. Pick something during the day, like every time I walk through the door, or every time someone says my name, and you do this practice of noticing your three centers. And so you sit right where you are, or even if you're in motion, and take a second to check in with the three centers I call the, the mind, the heart, and the body. So first, feel how your body feels in this moment. 
You might start with your breathing, noticing your breathing. Are you breathing fast? Are you holding your breath? Are you deepening it or is it shallow? The breath is often a great mirror of what we're feeling on an emotional level in any moment. And then we notice our emotional state. You know, what's our mood? What might be charged? What's coming up for us? Or do we feel neutral? The more we know what neutral might feel, the more we're going to notice when we aren't neutral or when something else is sneaking in and suddenly we're feeling agitated or irritated. And then we notice our mental activity. We practice noticing if uh, we're getting stuck in the future, planning, worrying, imagining, or we're getting stuck in the past, ruminating about that conversation we just had or worrying that something didn't go the way it was supposed to. And as we become more familiar with how our body feels in each moment, what emotional state we have and how distracted we are, we can then learn to attend to the things that we need most so that we can bring our full selves to others. So just practice that check-in, practice in the morning, just tuning into how am I in this moment, practice at different points in the day. And the more you become familiar with your internal landscape, the more likely you will catch yourself before you react, the more you'll be able to attend to your own well-being, and the more you'll be able to bring compassion to what you're seeing unfolding for other people around you. Thank you, Gretchen Steidel, founder of Global Grassroots and Circles for Conscious Change. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It was such an honor. Today's conversation was the last in this limited series of Beyond Aid. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and we welcome your feedback. 